We turn in Scripture to two passages. First, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. And then, after that, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Our focus will be especially with 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But we first read Matthew 18, starting at verse 15. In fact, we'll read the first 14 verses in the preaching, in the, in the sermon this evening. Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That passage is often referred to as the way of Matthew 18, the way we are to carry out discipline in the church as brothers and sisters in Christ. We turn also to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in the body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present. Concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, the feast of unleavened bread, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle, not to company with fornicators, Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. With such an one, no, not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without. Do not ye judge them that are within? 
but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So far, we read God's holy and infallible word. It's on the basis of this passage of Scripture and these passages and many passages that we have the teaching of Lord's Day 31 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's found on page 18 in the back of the Psalter. Lord's Day 31. We're only going to read question and answer 85. Question and answer 85. How is the kingdom of heaven shut and open by Christian discipline? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith, maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith, and will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life, are complained of to the church, or to those who are thereunto appointed by the church. And if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church, and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. And when they promise and show real amendment, are again received as members of Christ and his church. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, last week Sunday we had a sermon that focused on the keys of the kingdom. And in that sermon we spent most of the time looking at the key of the preaching and how preaching serves to open and close the gate to the kingdom of heaven. In that sermon, we didn't spend too much time looking at the key of discipline. And so this morning, we're going to take the opportunity and spend a sermon, spend some time looking at the key of Christian discipline. I think this is worthwhile. Because to say that Christian discipline is unpopular in our day is an understatement. In most places, Christian discipline is thoroughly despised. What? You're not going to let me come to the Lord's Supper because I'm walking in sin? In a day and age where churches are struggling to keep up membership, you would actually go so far as to excommunicate someone out of the church? You're shooting yourself in the foot. You are simply a bunch of judgmental Pharisees. How unloving, how unchristian of you. That's the climate of our day. So that church discipline has not only become a rusty key of the kingdom, it has become thoroughly despised. And what is often the case, even in Reformed churches, is that when the elders see the need for discipline, a person quickly asks for his papers, leaves and starts maybe attending another church, another church where that sin is tolerated, or at least where the elders do not take proper oversight of the members. Even ministers and elders can be tempted sometimes to cringe when they see a matter of discipline coming more and more into focus and they see and they feel their God-given duty to act. And so the conversation around Christian discipline can often turn into a negative conversation. 
What we want to do this morning is look at this matter of Christian discipline from a more proper and positive perspective. As we said last week, the keys of the kingdom are used by Jesus for the protection and safety of his church to keep the citizens of the kingdom safe within the walls of the kingdom. And what we need to see is that a true church of Jesus Christ, especially in our day and age, ought to be jealous over the diligent and faithful exercise of Christian discipline. We ought to be jealous over it, especially as we get closer to the end. The fact is, Jesus Christ commands his church to exercise the keys of the kingdom. That's what's emphasized even in the catechism right away in answer 85. Thus, when according to the command of Christ, Christ, the king of the church, the Lord of his people, commands his people to exercise discipline. Besides that, we know that Christian discipline is one of the marks of the true church. An essential ingredient of a true church and a healthy church is the faithful exercise of Christian discipline. And besides that, we as Christians want to experience more and more the unity and love of Jesus Christ in the midst of the church. And Christian discipline is a very tangible way in which Christ facilitates that experience of love and unity in the church. Just listen to these verses. Revelation 3 verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Hebrews 12, 6 and 7. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? And then Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. Put it this way. Open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So a Reformed believer is jealous over the faithful exercise of Christian discipline. A Reformed church is jealous over the faithful exercise of Christian discipline. And this sermon this morning is intended to cultivate that jealousy among us more and more. We take as our theme, exercising Christian discipline. We look at that theme under three points. First, we see that it's done out of humility and love. Second, we see that it's done by the entire congregation. And third, we see that it is done with hope. In 1 Corinthians 5, that's where our focus is going to be especially this morning. In 1 Corinthians 5, we come across a very grievous, grievous issue. We read that there was a man who was having a sexual relationship with his father's wife, with his own stepmother. Verse 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And that language, his father's wife, would seem to indicate that this woman is not the man's own biological mother, but she was his stepmother. Either the father's first wife had died, or maybe the father had divorced his wife. Either way, this man was committing not just fornication, but he was committing the sin of incest. This was a gross and offensive sin. Such activity was not only forbidden, is not only forbidden under God's law, but it was forbidden even under Roman law. As Paul says, it was a sin that's not so much as mentioned among the Gentiles. And what was especially offensive is that this was not just a one-time event, 
but this was an ongoing activity. The language makes that clear. This man, who was a member in good standing in the church at Corinth, continued to be sexually involved with his father's wife, and the church knew about it and was openly tolerating it. In verse 2 we read, And ye are puffed up, and have not met rather mourned that he hath done this deed, might be taken away from among you. You are puffed up. You are proud. You have become arrogant. As you might know, the church at Corinth struggled with that. The church was a very proud and arrogant church. Already up to this point in the letter, Paul has to speak against their arrogancy numerous times. And now here he does it again. Your pride shows itself in yet another offensive way. You openly tolerate a man in your church who's walking impenitently in sin. And in fact, not only do you tolerate it, but you boast about it. That's verse 6. Your glorying is not good. They were boasting, they were glorying in the fact that they could have this man in their church. That's how spiritually mature they were, so they thought. That that we're so spiritually mature, so dignified, that we can tolerate this man in our midst. But what does Paul say? Paul says, And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. You should have been mourning, Paul says, and in your mourning you should have been exercising Christian discipline and put this man out of your midst. But you didn't because you're puffed up. Now, congregation, let's pause there for a moment and notice what Paul is saying. What he says is significant because he's pointing out that the reason they failed to exercise discipline in the church at Corinth was because there was too much pride. There was a lack of humility, a lack of love, and too much pride. And that's very important for us to see because the attitude of many today is just the opposite. The attitude of many is this. We don't exercise discipline because we're too humble to exercise discipline. That's the excuse churches give for why they don't do discipline because from their own point of view, they're too humble and they boast in their humility. We're not going to judge another man. After all, who are we to judge? We're all sinners too, aren't we? We're so humble that we could never carry out discipline the way that you do in our church, the way you carry out discipline in yours. And then when another church does carry out discipline, that church is characterized as proud, judgmental, and holier than thou. Humility is said to be the reason The church will tolerate impenitent members walking in sin. And in 1 Corinthians 5, the apostle says, no, it's the exact opposite. You won't do discipline because you are proud. If you had truly been humble, if you hadn't been so puffed up, you would have mourned. And you would have been humble enough to call sin for what it is. You would have owned up to the presence of sin in your midst. And you would have mourned to the point where you would have forced yourself to put this man, whom you love as a brother, out of your midst. Instead of coddling him, instead of approving his behavior, instead of having meals with him, instead of boasting in your own spiritual maturity, you should have humbled yourself. 
Acknowledge this gross and offensive sin for what it is and put it out from among you. But you don't because you won't humble yourself enough to do it. If the people actually had grief over their sin, they would have dealt with the sin properly. This is an important principle to understand. Humility is is the basis and really the source of all godly admonition in the church. Humility and love. I am humble enough to acknowledge that there is sin, this sin in our church. And it's offensive. And this is my church. And this is my church family. And the presence of this sin is reason for all of us to humble ourselves. In this church, we call sin for what it is. We don't wink at it. We don't overlook it. We don't give an excuse for it. We don't call it a bad habit. We call it for what it is. Sin and rebellion against God. And that's also true in the privacy of our own homes and marriages and families. We don't hide our sin. We call it for what it is. We own up to it because that's what the grace of humility does. Humility points out sin for what it is. We don't don't ignore it. We don't let it fester. We call it out and we deal with it. And maybe we gather around the kitchen table and we talk about it. And we bring each other to repentance. And maybe we gather all the kids around and we talk about it. And we address it, we we bring each other to repentance, and we forgive, we have a crying session, because humbling ourselves in this way is a very painful thing, and because we know that this sin is very offensive to God, and because we all know we're all saved by God's grace and God's grace alone, and we hate this sin, and we shouldn't be having anything to do with it, because we know we're saved by grace, and we are thankful, and yet here there is still this sin, and we repent. And we forgive. And we forsake the sin. And we move forward. We press forward in sanctification. And that's what life looks like. But we don't wink at sin. We never tolerate sin. Not in this church either. Because sin kills. And sin destroys. And sin divides. And sin is an offense to God. And sin is a cancer. And in humility we talk about the sin. We confront it and we deal with it in the way that is necessary. And yes, indeed, love covers a multitude of sins. But love is also oftentimes burdened to talk to the person about what we perceive to be sin. And we go humbly in love, seeking the person's good, especially when it is obvious and persistent sin. And this man who's committed this sin, he's my brother. I mourn over him. And in true brotherly humility, I go to him and I point out his sin. He's walking down the path that leads to hell. I need to stop him. And all the while as I do that, I might be making myself open and vulnerable to all kinds of accusations, all kinds of nasty remarks, but I'm going to do this anyway because I know this is right and I love the man. And the names that he might call me or that others might call me don't ultimately matter. What matters is this man's salvation and doing what is right before the eyes of the Lord. I will humble myself to the point of submitting myself to what God's word tells me to do. That's true humility. Losing my life in this way too, I will humble myself to recognize that I'm not in a position to tell God what love looks like, but I listen to what his word tells me about what love looks like. That's why we do discipline, out of love 
and out of humility. Only a humble man is going to be willing to do the hard work of, of, of doing this kind of thing out of love for his brother. That's why when it comes to looking at office bearers, one of the chief qualities of an elder especially must be humility. Because if a group of men are going to bother to do church discipline, they must above all have the humility to submit to God's word and have the humility to give themselves over for the good of their brother or sister in Christ in the church and carry out discipline. No matter how many people might judge them uncharitably. Now all of this brings us to consider an important question. And we should ask this question. Why was this kind of thing going on in the church at Corinth? How does this happen? Why would a church, a church of Jesus Christ, be willing to tolerate a man who's committing incest with his own stepmother? Well, as we know, the reason that we do things is not, first of all, because of practice, but it's because of doctrine. Lying under a wicked practice, a wicked way of doing things, there is a wicked doctrine, a wicked way of thinking, and there are heart issues that explain why we do what we do. The church at Corinth tolerated this wicked sin in their midst because they had bad doctrine. Practice is always rooted in doctrine. Maybe they had a perverted view of love. They did. That was 1 Corinthians 13, that chapter on love. That's really the center of this whole book. You've got a wrong view of love. But probably the doctrine that they were embracing was also this. Let us sin that grace may abound. We have freedom in Christ. We are spiritually mature. The church at Corinth, they had so many spiritual gifts. They had knowledge. They boasted in their knowledge. And so they said, we're no longer under the Old Testament laws, and therefore we are so mature that we can tolerate sin. After all, all of this will only magnify God's grace. It seems like that was the problem in the church at Corinth. And we know from other letters that this was, this was a problem in the New Testament church. Paul deals with it in the book of Romans. Paul deals with it again in the book of Galatians. Jesus deals with it in his letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3. It's this kind of teaching that acts like a cancer in churches today. Sin as you please, because God will forgive you anyway. God loves you. We are mature enough that we know that all who are truly God's people will never lose their salvation. Therefore, you can walk in sin. Your salvation is secure. No. God's people must be a holy people. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And what Paul is making reference there to is uh, to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was the feast that immediately followed the Feast of Passover. And you know what pa the Passover feast was. The lamb that was slain. And the blood was sprinkled and, and the lamb was eaten, the Passover meal. Well, the day after the Passover feast, you had seven days of more feasting. And that was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the feast in which the Israelites had to get rid of all the leaven, all the yeast in their homes. They must not have any yeast in their house for the duration of those seven days of the feast. 
And that yeast, that leaven, was a picture of sin. And just the idea was that just as they had to get rid of all the yeast in their house, in their homes, so they had to get rid of all their sin. They had to put those sins away and forsake them. And they had to do that because that's the proper response to the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Passover comes first, and the Feast of Passover tells them how Jesus is the Lamb who died for their sins. And they're saved through the blood of the Lamb. And now the Feast of Unleavened Bread comes and tells them that this is now how you need to live. Live without any sin. Be a holy people. And that's what Paul's communicating to the saints at Corinth here in the middle of chapter 5. Jesus, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, we should now no longer live in sin. We must put away sin from us. Keep the feast of unleavened bread. Not just for a week, but keep the feast your whole life long. And the point is, get this sin out of you. Don't you know how yeast works? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. One sin in the church, if it is allowed to grow, will spread and it will infect the rest of the church. Don't make peace with sin. In Jesus Christ, declare war on sin, whatever it takes. And that applies to the church. That applies also to us in our personal lives. Because sometimes we can fall into the same way of thinking that the church at Corinth was falling into. I can tolerate sin. I, I can tolerate at least this sin in my life. Because after all, I, I know it's sin. I know it's sin. And I know my sins are forgiven in Christ. So I can tolerate this sin, you see, because I'm spiritually mature enough to handle it. Let us sin, that grace may abound. How I sin in my own personal life is my own personal private business. It's not the church's business. The church is simply there to tell me that Jesus loves me. And so I fornicate once again. I look at pornography once again. I look at this smut on the TV screen once again. I treat my wife shamefully once again because I can handle it. And I know I'm a Christian. You know what we're doing when we have that kind of attitude? You know how this man in Corinth was behaving himself when he continued fornicating and committing incest? You know how this entire church was behaving when it tolerated this kind of sin in its midst? What they were doing was this. And I think the children can understand it. Do you children remember when Jesus died on the cross? There were Roman soldiers that were sent out to check and make sure that the men who died, on, who, who were hanging on the cross, were dead. You remember when those soldiers came to Jesus? They, they didn't break his bones because they saw Jesus was already dead. But remember, they took a spear... And they slit the side of Jesus open, and blood and water came out. Do you know what the entire church at Corinth was doing when they were tolerating this man in their midst? They were taking that spear out of the hand of that Roman soldier, and they were ramming that spear again and again into the side of Jesus Christ. That's what they were doing. And do you know what we do when we walk impenitently in sin? And maybe we get drunk night after night, weekend after weekend. Or we lie to our parents day after day. Or we look at porn week after week. We're taking that spear out of the hand of the Roman soldier and we're 
ramming it again and again into the side of the blessed body of our crucified Savior. Or, to use the language of Scripture, treading underfoot the Son of God, counting the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. This is why we exercise discipline in the church. Because we understand our sin for what it is. This is what it is. And we humble ourselves and confess that these things are in our midst. This is what dwells in my own sinful nature. And I hate it. And I will not tolerate it. And I love the Lord Jesus. And I love the gospel of salvation. And I will not tread it underfoot here in this church. And we will not minimize the wonder of grace. We will not minimize the fact that God has a rightful claim to all my life. Every day, every second, he's purchased all of who I am. And I owe all that I am to him. Because not only is he my God, but he's my savior. And we know that Christ's purpose with his church is that we be a holy bride. We be a holy bride without spot or wrinkle. And I want to please the bridegroom. And so we exercise discipline out of love and humility. Discipline is done out of humility and love. And you can be sure that's what motivates the Apostle Paul when he's writing this strong rebuke in 1 Corinthians 5. So discipline is done out of humility and love. Now as we continue, we must see that this work of discipline is done by the entire congregation. The question comes up, who does this? Who does church discipline? Or maybe we say right away, the elders do it. Well, that's true, but it's ultimately the congregation that does it through the elders. In fact, what we should emphasize is that when it comes to Christian discipline, it starts with the members of the church. It arises out of the life of the congregation. We read Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives us clear instructions. If you see your brother walking in sin, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. If he will not hear you, and if he will not hear you when you take two or three witnesses with you, then you take the matter to the church. You refer it to the consistory, which represents the church. But even then, the discipline remains the discipline of the entire church. First of all, because of the fact that the consistory represents the church and has been chosen by the members of the church to do this work on behalf of the church. And in addition, as you proceed through the steps of discipline, there are announcements. And the members of the congregation give their approbation to those announcements. And the members of the congregation are praying for the individual under discipline. And if the individual's name is given, the member prays for him and then also goes to him and admonishes him and rebukes him and tells him things are not well between us because of your sin. The congregation must be involved in the work of discipline. Not only do we have to exercise the office of believer, but the fact is, if discipline should ever become the exclusive work of the consistory, the elders, there will soon be no more discipline work to do. And that's because if the members in the church are not confronting one another with their sin, the, mem- the matter will never be brought to the attention of the elders. When church members hide their sin within their marriages, within their homes, or their, their group of friends, and they tolerate it, and they hide it, it can never be addressed in a profitable way. In addition, when church members don't want discipline, 
what's going to happen is that they're going to start voting for office bearers that are spiritually weak and whom they know won't address the sin appropriately. So the responsibility to discipline lies as much on the members of the church as a whole as it does on the elders. Without the spiritual confidence, and I think this is what we need, the spiritual confidence to exercise discipline, without that confidence on the part of the members and the elders, the mark of Christian discipline will fade away. That the congregation needs to be involved in the discipline of the members, uh, 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 of individual members in the church, is demonstrated by 1 Corinthians 5. Notice verse 4, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes there how the saints are to put out this fornicator from their midst. When the congregation is gathered together, they as one body put the impenitent sinner from their midst. That's also significant for after excommunication takes place. After excommunication takes place, and even to use the language of the the catechism, when it talks about how uh, an individual might be forbidden the use of the sacraments, already then they are excluded from the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. That's interesting language there, but leave it to excommunication. After excommunication takes place, we should not treat that individual as if he's still our friend or our brother in Christ. Even even while under discipline, we don't interact with him or her as if everything is hunky-dory. The man who asks for his membership papers while he's under discipline and who breaks his vows, that man may not be treated as if he's still our friend or our brother in Christ. Oh yes, we must be kind to him. We must not be rude. But we must not have any company with him so that he might be ashamed. And he might feel the full consequences of his sins. We admonish him in love as a brother. But we don't have table fellowship with that man. Paul speaks to that issue in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or a covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner. With such an one, no, not to eat. That's how the whole congregation needs to behave with respect to the one who's put, been put outside the kingdom of heaven by the key of Christian discipline. As much as possible, that man, that woman, needs to experience the full brunt of being excommunicated from the church. Don't eat with that man. Don't have Thanksgiving dinner with that man. Don't have Christmas dinner with that man acting as if you have nothing against him. That's not going to help him. No, put him out with the hope that by God's grace he might feel it and he might repent and be restored to fellowship and be brought again into the kingdom of heaven. That leads us to the third point of the sermon. We exercise Christian discipline with hope. The reality is, where there is no proper discipline exercised, where you don't treat the disciplined member properly, there is no hope. If an individual is walking in sin, and there is no proper discipline exercised by the entire congregation, there is no hope. And there's nothing to be encouraged about. There is something to lament, in fact. There is nothing to hope for. 
The person will continue in his sin to this, to this destruction of his own soul. That's why God has given discipline, so that we might help the individual forsake his sin and turn again to the right way of repentance and godliness and holiness. With the proper exercise of discipline, there is hope. Even when the form for excommunication is read, that step itself is called the last remedy. The ultimate hope with putting someone outside the church is that the person might feel the consequences of his sin while he is still on earth, while it is still called today, and he repent and be restored. Just think of what happened in 1 Corinthians 5 with the, to the man committing incest. Do you know what happened to that man? Do you children know what happened to that man who was walking in sin? He was put out of the church. He was excommunicated. The members of the church at Corinth listened to what the apostle told them to do here in this letter. They stopped having table fellowship with him. They put him out, and he felt the consequences of his sin. And he learned to be ashamed of himself and loathe and abhor himself. And he repented. And he became, by God's grace, an entirely different man. You can read of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We read it last week Sunday. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. The Apostle Paul is making reference to that man who was excommunicated by the church of Corinth. And what do you read? You read that he repented. He forsook his sin. And he, he wanted to be back in the fellowship of his true spiritual friends in Jesus Christ. He saw his sin. He appreciated it. And he turned from it. And Paul has to write the Corinthians and tell them, to receive this man back into their fellowship and to confirm their love towards him. But the point is, excommunication bore good fruit. Christian discipline is always done with that hope. It's, never, it's not done with the intent of driving an individual away from Christ or away from church. It's always done with the intent of bringing about repentance that that person might be truly brought to Christ and that they might be, enjoy sanctification. But God does use strong measures sometimes. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5. Paul writes that the saints at Corinth were called to deliver the man unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's what excommunication is. A man is delivered over unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. A man is delivered over to Satan so that through Satan's work upon that man, having his way with that man, the man in the end is sanctified. Because Satan is a means, a tool in God's hand. But congregation, that's not the pleasant way of being sanctified. That's when a man's entire flesh is destroyed. His, his earthly life is destroyed. Maybe he goes into drugs and alcohol Maybe because of sexual sin, he ruins his whole marriage and family. Maybe he loses all his wealth. Maybe he's, he's put in jail for the rest of his life. But in one way or another, he is completely reduced to nothing. Until finally, if there is some spiritual life in him, only that spiritual life is left. He's brought to rock bottom. So that the only place he can look up, or he can look, is up 
And that's sometimes how God is pleased to save his people. I think of Manasseh. 50 years of abhorrent wickedness. Thrown in prison. And there he was reduced to nothing. And the Lord used that to change his heart. I've, I've heard it before. And this is kind of a sad story, but it's reason for rejoicing. A man born and raised in a Christian hope, in a Christian home, started walking in sin. This is a story I remember hearing, and I, I have met the man. He was excommunicated out of the church, and he continued walking in all kinds of filth and sexual sin until one day he upset the wrong people, and he got his head smashed in. Quite literally, he got his head smashed in, and they left him for dead. But he survived. And he literally needed all kinds of reconstructive surgery on his face. He was hospitalized for weeks. But he was brought so low, his flesh was so destroyed, that he was forced to stop and think about how he was living. And he knew what he needed to do. He needed to repent and turn to the way of obeying the Lord Jesus. And he did, by God's grace. Sometimes the Lord uses those strong measures. Sometimes stubborn sheep have to have their legs broken by the shepherd before they learn to stop walking away from the flock. That's what happens with sheep sometimes. Their legs are broken. But it's better to have your legs broken. And it's better to have your head smashed in. And it's better to have your eye plucked out or your hand cut off than to have your soul perish in hell. For God's people, when church discipline is exercised, there's always hope. Because God has given this for, for his people, for her salvation. And after all, when we look at ourselves, what we must say, if God is able to turn a sinner like me to the path of righteousness, he can do it with others too. I know my sins. I know the sins that the Lord has caused me to see and to turn from and repent. He can do that with me. He can do that with others. And again, let's remember where we are in the catechism. We're in the second section of the catechism. We're looking at how Jesus delivers us from our sin and misery. He uses discipline. That's where we are. He uses discipline to protect his people in that salvation he has given them. This is part of the word of grace, the word of the gospel. This is the care of Jesus Christ for his church. For the salvation of the impenitent member, for the safety of God's people, and for the glory of God's holy name. Let us here in this church be jealous over the right use of the key of Christian discipline. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we are of ourselves a pathetic and sinful people. But Thou hast done a marvelous work, saving us from our sins. And Thou art continuing to do that marvelous work. And we know it ourselves, Lord, and we thank Thee for Thy chastening hand. We thank thee for thy gentle leading. 
And we thank thee again for the keys that thou hast given to us as an instituted church for the safety and protection of the sheep and the lambs and of the flock here. We pray, Lord, that we might understand these keys, we might exercise them faithfully, characterized by true love and humility. And we thank thee for thy word that gives us such clear instruction. Give us the grace, Lord, to submit to thy word, to submit to thee, and to be jealous for thy glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.